Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Tim Jarvis will join us to discuss Chasing Shackleton. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton is undoubtedly one of the world's greatest stories of survival. On an expedition to the South Pole in 1914, his expedition became stranded on an island. Presumed lost, what ensued was a fantastic voyage of survival that remains a marvel even today. Our guest today, Mr. Tim Jarvis, is one of the world's leading explorers, and he set out to recreate this amazing journey of survival of Shackleton's using traditional gear. Mr. Jarvis holds the world record for the fastest unsupported journey to the South Pole and the longest unsupported journey to Antarctica. He's a best-selling author, filmmaker, and public speaker, and his previous expedition, a reenactment of Sir Douglas Mawson's 1912 trek across Antarctica, was turned into a best-selling book and award-winning documentary, Mawson, Life and Death in Antarctica. His recent release, Chasing Shackleton, Recreating the World's Greatest Journey of Survival, recounts his attempts to recreate Shackleton's journey and coincides with a three-part PBS documentary that is starting this week. And Mr. Jarvis, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks, Charles. Great to be here. Certainly pleased to have you on the program. Certainly a fascinating tale, uh, Chasing Shackleton, carrying the World's Greatest Journey of Survival. I'm curious to maybe you could first tell us how you became interested in the journey of Shackleton. I think I've always been interested in it. It's a journey that obviously took place a 100 years ago. And I think if you're interested in the outdoors, like I am, and in pushing yourself and in Antarctica, then Shackleton's journey is really right up there at the top of the tree. Uh, Edmund Hillary, who first scaled Mount Everest back in 1953, said uh, Shackleton's journey was the greatest journey of survival uh, the world had ever seen. And, you know, it's always captured the imagination. Uh, for those of us who don't really know the details of Shackleton's, I'm wondering if maybe you can uh, describe a little bit about what befell Shackleton on his journey to the South Pole and really why this is the greatest journey of survival. Well, he went there to actually try and walk all the way across Antarctica. Uh, it had never been done before. Scott and the Norwegian Amundsen had both reached the South Pole only a couple of years prior. Scott and all of his men, of course, had died on the return journey. And Amundsen was successful and lauded as a hero. And Shackleton thought, well, I can do one better than that. I can go all the way across Antarctica with the South Pole as the midway point of that journey. And of course, his ship, the Endurance, was crushed in the pack ice, very much like the situation we've heard about recently with the ship being stuck in the pack ice, except that Shackleton's ship was wooden and the pressure was sufficient to crush the boat and sink it. So he and his 27 men were forced to abandon ship into three small lifeboats, 23-foot keelless wooden rowboats, essentially. And they lived under these for many months on the pack ice till the pack ice broke up. Then they paddled them to an island called Elephant Island, just off the Antarctic Peninsula. And there Shackleton left 22 of his men under two of the upturned boats, living on a diet of seals and penguins. And he and the five strongest men got in the most seaworthy of these rowboats and went 800 nautical miles across the Southern Ocean in huge seas, in a boat that really was very dangerous, very unstable, uh, trying to reach an island called South Georgia where they knew there was a whaling station. They got there. 
and they reached the wrong side of the island and had to climb through the mountains for the first time to reach the whaling station, raise the alarm and save everyone. And they did manage to save everyone. It was an incredible story. And this is with gear that today would seem very remarkable that they were able to do with, with the equipment of the time, really. Yes, that's right. I mean, of interest to people with a kind of scientific mind, it was all about traditional navigation. So it was a case of using a sextant, a compass and a chronometer. A chronometer, of course, is just a clock that sits on a gimbal, which allows the boat to move, but doesn't affect the swing of the pendulum in the clock and allows it to keep a accurate time, supposedly. And you use that to run the math and do the calculations on where the, the sun is and where you are latitudinally at any given moment. And that's what we use to navigate. The way we tried to prevent it from capsizing was to put in about a ton of ballast. Uh, Shackleton used rocks from Elephant Island. We used a combination of camera batteries so we could continuously film the experience with fixed cameras and the rest were rocks. And we did everything else exactly as he did. The book and the, the documentary shows a lot of the pictures and the perils that you that faced. I mean, along the journey, what did you feel was sort of the, the greatest challenges to making this journey? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, the boat, if you could imagine it, uh, without a keel, it's just a rowboat. There's no keel that goes vertically down into the water to stop the boat uh, capsizing. So the biggest risk we had was capsize. And the trouble is the, uh, the temperature of the ocean down there is only just above freezing. And had any man fallen in, uh, wearing uh, woolen clothes, leather boots and uh, cotton uh, windproof layers. Don't forget Shackleton had this clothing because he thought he was going to cross the land. And windproofing and breathability of the clothing was really important, but not for this journey in an open boat. And so uh, I suppose the biggest problem for us were the risk of capsize, the risk of falling in, would have meant certain death for someone, I'm afraid, because there's no way the rest of us could have affected any kind of rescue for the person who'd fallen in. That was the big problem. Going down very big waves out in the ocean, narrowly missed an iceberg in the middle of the night. Uh, we could only hear it with the waves crashing against it as we crept past. And then reaching South Georgia itself, the cliffs are 600 feet high and the ocean, of course, is very big and threatens to throw you onto the rocks at the base of the cliffs. And uh, not much you can do about it again in a boat with no keel and no, no motor, obviously, just oars and a very small sail. So it was a very tricky journey all, all round. You certainly had where you were headed, South Georgia. Did Shackleton uh, also know that this was the one to go to? It really was the equivalent of a moonshot back in the old days. Um, he knew that from South, uh, from, from Antarctica, where he was, South Georgia was the only realistic option based on the currents and the winds that they were going to get. Uh, they come from the west, from the Pacific, and they come around the bottom of Cape Horn from the Pacific into the Atlantic from kind of left to right, if you're looking at the map. And there's no way known that he could have gone from Antarctica to South America or to the Falkland Islands, because that would have meant sailing and paddling directly into this very strong current. The current is about three times the, the volume of the Gulf Stream that you get in, in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a huge river of water uh, going from west to east. So the only cho choice he had was the small dot of an island in the middle of the ocean, South Georgia. If you'd missed that, the next place was South Africa, about another uh, 3,000 miles further on. So it was all or nothing. He had to make it. No other land beyond that. And then by the time he reached the island, that, that was not the end of the uh, the challenges. He had to really scale this uh, heavy mountain, which uh, really is, is a challenge even to uh, experienced mountaineers of the day. That's right. I mean, uh, he did it. He did it in a time that nobody else has been able to match. He and his two colleagues, uh, in, even Reinhold Messner, and Ed Vistas, uh, two of the greatest mountaineers ever to walk the uh, the face of the earth, you know, great 8,000 meter peak baggers, you know, they've climbed all of those mountains, both of them, 
Uh, they crossed South Georgia and they were unable to do it in the time that Shackleton had taken because he took all the risks known to man to, to, to make it because he knew that the survival of his men left behind in Antarctica was reliant upon him making the crossing of the mountains to reach the whaling station and raise the alarm. And, you know, we did it with the same lack of equipment as him. In other words, just one length of rope, one piece of climbing equipment, which is an axe. And we had screws pushed through the soles of our boots, like, you know, leather boots, like he did, in a bid to uh, to try and give us some kind of grip. But it's very dangerous terrain, lots of crevices and lots of uh, opportunities to fall and uh, and kill yourself. After all this, it's even more remarkable that he was able to rescue all 22 of his uh, crew members. I mean, after having gone through the entire journey, do you have an even greater appreciation? And can you even imagine him actually being able to do this at the time? No, I mean, I marvel at what he achieved. And I think by doing what we've done, we've really only served to elevate the legend that is Shackleton. Because, you know, if I can say so without being modest, we're a very good team. I mean, uh, you know, I've done a lot of polar expeditions. Uh, I had a couple of world-class sailors. Uh, I had the head of uh, outdoor survival for the Combined Armed Forces of the UK. He's the Sergeant Major of the uh, the Royal Marines Elite Regiment in the UK. And a couple of other guys, you know, one guy, the cameraman, uh, he, you know, summited Everest twice. And, you know, he's, he's no slouch. So uh, we found it extremely difficult. And uh, we hadn't spent all that time living on the pack ice after our main expedition ship was crushed. So he went through even more than we did. Do you think that having gone to Antarctica, as you mentioned before, several times, that this gave you insight into just exactly how to tackle this particular journey? I think so. I think these things are about, they're as much physical as they are mental. Uh, they are a little bit, you know, pulling a sled across the frozen south is a bit of an exercise in, in calculus. You know, as you're going along, you find that your your body weight goes down as you cons- as your body consumes itself to fuel its workload. And you just hope that the rate at which your um, strength diminishes is slower than the rate at which your uh, the sled weight goes down, uh, because um, with the consumption of the food and the fuel and the sled and that you're pulling, because otherwise you're going to get to a day when you just won't be able to move the sled anymore. But, you know, it's all about obviously having a certain amount of physical fitness and, and physical endurance, but as much as anything, almost a mental exercise. And having been south four times previously, I've learned a lot of those techniques. In the end, after uh, Shackleton uh, was rescued, uh, did he uh, try to return to Antarctica? He did. He went back down one more time in 1922, which is six years after the events that uh, unfolded, six or seven years after these events. And uh, he died of a heart attack the night he arrived at the place which was the scene of his greatest victory, which is South Georgia. You know, he'd reached that whaling station only six or seven years before to raise the alarm and save all of his men. And he went down again in 1922 and died the night he arrived and was buried in the graveyard down down in South Georgia. And we stood there at the graveside uh, with his granddaughter, toasted him with some of the whiskey that he had taken south, and uh, it, was a, it was a very powerful moment. You could probably think of no better place, really, for him to have his final resting place. That's right. I mean, you know, he was a great showman and a great romantic, really, and uh, loved the challenge of seeing what could be accomplished when he pushed himself, I, I think really that this kind of spirit of human adventure fuels entrepreneurialism. It, it fuels, you know, scientific discovery. It fuels medical research. It fuels a desire for somebody to try and find out more about themselves and about the world in which we live. And for him, it was all about one big adventure in trying to find out more, more about what he was about and more about the regions through which he traveled, which in his day were undiscovered. And, uh, you know, he just couldn't fit in back in everyday life and went down again. And of course, it was the final time. 
Do you think there are frontiers left for uh, people like Shackleton in today's world? I think so. I think the media largely misrepresents the extent to which we know everything. I mean, I think if you look in the context of, say, space, uh, we don't really know about dark energy or dark matter. And that's kind of 96, 97 percent of the total. Now, when it comes to the planet, um, you know, there are a lot of mountains that are left unclimbed. A lot of the world's oceans are not properly mapped. And if you ask any two biologists as to how many species we actually share the planet with, you'll find the range is very great. You'll find the, you know, the range is probably somewhere between, you know, three and uh, 50 million. And we've only catalogued about one and a half million species. 18,000 species we discovered last year alone. You know, this is, it's, it's, you know, I think, I think the impression is given by the media that we have largely done everything and it's just a case of, uh, you know, the detail now. But in fact, there are some very fundamental principles that remain uh, largely uh, unknown and unexplored. And there's plenty of room for everybody to uh, to embark on a career in science and discover more. What is it that got you interested in doing these sorts of expeditions? Oh, look, originally it was a physical challenge, but I think now I just enjoy I jo- enjoy the, the experience of discovering almost more about myself when I go there. Uh, I, I find, you know, you constantly learn new things. You learn just the extent to which you know, we don't know all there is to know. Uh, you're discovering new things all the time. And that learning curve is always very steep. And uh, I enjoy that resourceful side of me that comes out in response to the difficult situations in which I place myself. And it keeps me wanting to go back for more. And I love those places. There's no societal noise. There's no radio. There's no TV. There's no Internet. And it's uh, it's a place where you can really experience who you are, because the only thing you're left with is, is you and this this vast place. Uh, well, and taken to uh, documenting many of these journeys, uh, both in the book and in the uh, documentary, is sort of your part that kind of excitement for, for these journeys and expeditions that I'm taking? I think it is. I think I'd love to, to bring to everybody's attention the legend that is Shackleton and the leadership that he stood for. You know, he was all about putting aside, you know, his men putting aside their differences and pulling together to achieve their goal against almost impossible odds. I think that's a very resonant message for the world in which we find ourselves today. You know, the idea of trying to uh, solve, you know, climate change or the rise of extremism uh, as an individual or as an individual country. Uh, the days for that are gone. And I think we need to act collectively to try and make any progress in these areas. And that's what Shackleton stood for. And I think, yes, by us having achieved what we have, I hope it sets an example to others that they can try and test themselves in their particular chosen field. It doesn't have to be the South Pole. It can be uh, some metaphorical equivalent of the South Pole, but in their particular chosen field. And uh, I think everybody has a South Pole. It's just a case of finding it and having a go. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, so what's your next South Pole? What's uh, next on the journey for you? Well, it definitely will not involve a small boat in the <laughs> Southern Ocean, I can tell you that. Uh, seasickness, hypothermia, frozen feet. Yeah, that's enough of small boat journeys for a while. I think it'll involve mountaineering at the equator. Uh, very interested to uh, explore some of those areas and look at the amount of glacial melt that's happening at the glaciers at the equator. So that's probably going to be the next project. Uh, well, we'll look forward to uh, reading about it. And uh, the new book is called Chasing Shackleton, Recreating the World's Greatest Journey of Survival. And the author is Mr. Tim Jarvis. Mr. Jarvis, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Thanks, Charles. And if anyone wants to find out more, shackletonepic.com is the website. Thank you again. Thanks again, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.